now, this week's episode of The Monster in the Mirror. I learned an important lesson from my exchange with Mr. Alex Jones. Never trust a man whose neck veins are thicker than his thumbs. Anyway, after sampling Mr. Jones's hemoglobin, I moved on to another luminary of the 21st century. Mr. Tucker Carlson. So last week in the Wall Street Journal, there was a kind of remarkable op-ed stating as clearly as anyone has ever stated the nature of the threat that we face from China. The op-ed was written by someone who would know more intelligence performed than anyone on the globe apart from the president. We're happy to have him on tonight. Tucker, I'm happy to share my intelligence with one of the greatest newscasters in the game. I've never seen anyone use such a grating voice to such a persuasive effect. Really? Yes, really, and that's a great example of what I'm talking about. Anyway, let's talk about my op-ed, Are the Chinese an Ancient Race of Shape-Shifting Lizards? I don't have the answers yet, but my point is, we won't get any if we don't ask questions. It made me wonder why the rest of us haven't been saying this for quite some time. You make it sound obvious. Yeah. All I'm saying is, it's entirely reasonable to ask whether the Chinese were grown on a planet four billion miles away and then sent to conquer the Earth through a combination of lab-grown viruses, an innate propensity for breeding, a natural talent for communism, and, you know, uh, being good at math and stuff. The most jarring part of the piece, I thought, was your description of the massive ramp-up of the Chinese military. And from your telling, not necessarily for defensive purposes, what do you think their aim is? Well, Tucker, after careful reflection and sifting through the evidence, I think it's pretty clear. China wants to put all white Christians in an intergalactic zoo. In fact, there's actually a rumor online that they want to put you specifically in a cage with Matt Walsh. That's horrifying. Oh, I know. I mean, it's unconfirmed. Do you think Beijing anticipates some kind of physical confrontation with the United States in, in the next several years? Undoubtedly. And Tucker, that's why I'm calling for a massive ramp up of America's military. Not necessarily for defensive purposes, if you know what I mean. I'm saying we should blow China away is what I'm saying. Thank you for helping to wake people up. Well, thank you for doing your part to fight the yellow danger. That's an adorable bow tie, by the way. Oh, yes. It's hard to believe it took me three years of living in New York to learn not to antagonize strangers on the subway. But sometimes, experience is the mother of wisdom. Back in 2011, I was riding the subway early in the morning. Nearby, a passenger had somehow managed to tune into Fox News on his portable radio. And I knew that because he wasn't wearing headphones. Somehow assuming that this man would be open to friendly chastisement, I asked him if he wouldn't mind turning down the volume. 
Big mistake. Almost immediately, he got up and started stalking up and down the subway, ranting about how the country was going to the dogs. Then he pointed at me and accused me of being a Chinese spy whom Obama had let into the country. I wasn't sure whether to be scared or amused. Thankfully, he got off at the next stop and, so far as I know, never reported me to the NSA. Over a decade later, the rise of anti-Asian hate makes my subway harasser seem positively genteel in comparison. In its last national report, Stop AAPI Hate estimated that it had received 11,500 separate reports of anti-Asian harassment between March 2020 and March 2022. While two-thirds of those incidents were verbal, one in six also involved physical violence. That's almost 2,000 incidents of pushing and kicking. And these are just the incidents that have been reported. Language barriers combined with shame mean that elderly Asians are much less likely to speak out about their suffering. As a result, half of surveyed Asian Americans reported that they do not feel safe going out. The highly visible deaths of people such as Christina Yuna Lee have only compounded the fear. Followed by a man who forced his way into our apartment. What does any of this have to do with Christian nationalism? A lot. Dr. Andrew Whitehead, whom I interviewed in the first episode, found in a 2020 study along with Dr. Samuel Perry that Christian nationalism strongly correlated to the belief that there was nothing racist about calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus. It's quite clear that the cult of Trump all but guaranteed that his disciples would mimic his racist response to COVID. Kung flu, yeah. Still, Trump isn't the only reason for what I call sanctified sinophobia today. The notion that China particularly poses a threat to white Christianity goes back to the 19th century, when a runaway bestseller played a key role in making sinophobia central to white Christian nationalism as we know it. M.P. Shields, The Yellow Danger. Published in 1898, the Yellow Danger became a runaway smash hit, one that Shields spent the rest of his career trying to replicate. Here's my attempt at summarizing the novel. Dr. Yen Hao, a genius whose intelligence is matched only by his pure evil anti-white hatred, starts the novel by essentially propositioning an English woman on the streets of London. When she responds with horror at the mere thought of kissing a Chinaman, Hao's resentment transforms into a determination to destroy all of Europe. Due to his combined Japanese-Chinese heritage, he's able to attain positions of influence in both the Japanese and Chinese governments, using his power to turn Europe's nations against one another in the scramble for colonizing Asia. Once he attains the top post in China, he whips the nation into an anti-white, anti-Christian fury. Proclaiming himself to be the reincarnation of Confucius, Yen Hao organizes a vast military campaign that literally marches from China into a Europe destabilized by Yen Hao's machinations. At that point, the armies massacre a bunch more white people, spread disease throughout the land, and even desecrate Notre Dame Cathedral, replacing its Catholic iconography with Chinese idols. This plot to take over Europe, and by extension the world, 
is only stopped by the courage, intelligence, and patriotic fervor of an English naval officer named John Hardy, who winds up commanding the entire British fleet. After Hardy defeats Yin Hao in an epic sea battle, he dispatches the rest of the Yellow Hordes by either drowning them at sea or infecting them with cholera. Roll end credits. So there you have it. One of 1898's most popular British novels. One that repeatedly refers to the Chinese people as a virus in human form. It's strangely fascinating to me, the object of its relentless hatred. It's also, by far, the worst written text out of all the novels and stories we're examining in this series. It doesn't have any of Dracula's poetic lyricism or War of the World's scientific inventiveness. What it does have is an abundance of racism, overheated, hyperbolic racism. So much racism that I can practically hear a gong sound every time I turn the page. It's no surprise that the novel inspired 20th century author Sax Romer to create the infamous Dr. The Fu Manchu. The powers of Fu Manchu reach across the globe, manipulating men and marvels. That quintessential Asiatic fiend whose own legacy includes the Bond villain Dr. No, clearly modeled on Romer's oriental monster. I was the unwanted child of a German missionary and a Chinese girl of good family. Yet I became treasurer of the most powerful criminal society in China. In other words, Shields' novel sparked at least a century of anti-Asian racism in Anglo-American pop culture. And it was fueled by a specifically Christian horror of China as a land of satanic ruthlessness. In this episode, we're going to talk about how the Yellow Danger's sanctified Sinophobia anticipated the sermons, prayers, and pious Senate speeches that characterized today's crusade against the Yellow Danger. As a rising world power whose borders still pushed westward, late 19th century America was still a young nation with a near limitless sense of its own destiny. One subject, however, brought white Christian Americans close to the existential panic of their British Victorian counterparts. Um, so what I try to do is in the book is to unpack the many layers that had become sedimented around the term heathen by the late 19th century that makes it a useful epithet to um, hurl against the Chinese or to attach to the Chinese. This is Dr. Catherine Jinlum, professor of religious studies at Stanford University. As Dr. Lum notes in her book, Heathen, the Chinese of 19th century California heralded the first mass migration of an Asian population to America's shores in U.S. history. Dr. Lum points out in the book that a key influence on the notion of Chinese heathenness was Bret Hart's immensely popular poem, Plain Language from Truthful James, or as it was informally known, The Heathen Chinese. Heathenness was always about more than just wrong belief. Um, it was always about more than just an interior state, right? So it carried a host of assumptions about wrong bodies and about the lands that they lived on, that these bodies are incapable of taking care of the lands that they live on. So the root of the term heathen um, is heath, right? So like the wildernesses where heathen people were thought to wander, the bigotry of this period would culminate in the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, 
the first piece of American anti-immigrant legislation ever explicitly targeting a specific minority. This wasn't the only consequence of sanctified Sinophobia either. Chinese presence in the states sparked outbreaks of violence. In the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885, Chinese laborers were burned alive by members of the nativist labor group, the Knights of Labor. Its leader, Terence Powderly, defended the massacre by commenting, It is not necessary for me to speak of the numerous reasons given for opposition to this particular race, their habits, religion, customs, and practices. I mentioned in the first episode that many Londoners expressed similar sentiments during this period. But by and large, the Chinese in London remained a very small minority. British Sinophobia actually mainly emerged from Australia, whose own gold rush attracted Chinese laborers to its own shores. Just as in California, white Australians accused the Chinese of importing an alien religion and corrupting Christian men, not least through prostitution. And just as in California, xenophobic laborers responded with riots and massacres. Inspired by Bret Hart, poet James Brunton Stevens gave the colony the racist poems My Chinese Cook and My Other Chinese Cook. Stevens apparently had a limited range of subjects for his art. The 1890s also saw the publication of two novels imagining a mass Chinese takeover of Australia, William Lane's White or Yellow and Kenneth McKay's The Yellow Wave. Both were popular enough to see a print run in London itself. In the midst of this growing unease, one of Europe's most powerful rulers decided to wade into the discourse. In an 1895 cartoon, the German Kaiser Wilhelm commissioned and publicized an image that made the Yellow Peril visible throughout Europe, titled The Kaiser's Warning. In the cartoon, the nations of Europe are personified as white maidens standing on a cliff, peering over a foreboding valley. In the distance, a giant Buddha rides a dragon in a cloud of darkness. Directly before them, the Archangel Michael points to the Oriental menace with a sword, uttering the caption, Peoples of Europe, guard your most sacred possessions. Although Germany itself was in stiff competition with other imperial powers, the Kaiser's cartoon drew so much sympathy, it may have actually birthed the term Yellow Peril. Or, as a certain Pulp Fiction novelist put it, the yellow danger. Isn't there something in your Bible about a plague of frogs in the land of Egypt in the Pharaoh's time? Yes, surely, yes. Well, how would you like a little plague of frogs in your land of England? Given the yellow danger's obsession with the purity of the white race, you might be surprised to learn that its author wasn't exactly 100% Aryan. M.P. Scheele grew up as the grandson of slaves on both sides of his family. A Methodist preacher, the senior Scheele apparently read a chapter of the Bible every day with his son. While Scheele didn't grow up to be much of a pious Christian, he evidently retained a keen sense of biblical disasters, threatening to engulf the whole world. In his most famous book, The Purple Cloud, the entirety of humanity is destroyed by, are you sitting down for this? A giant purple cloud. Scheele seems to have had an obsession with brightly colored menaces to world peace. 
Meanwhile, his book The Last Miracle is set in a dystopian future where sinister forces plot to discredit Christianity on a global scale. In his lifetime, though, neither of these books did anything like the numbers that The Yellow Danger did. That's probably because the apocalypse in The Yellow Danger seemed far more plausible to his readers than a killer cloud or a successful plot to disprove Christianity. Inspired by the 1897 murder of two German missionaries in China, The Yellow Danger began life as a loosely connected series of fictional pieces in the magazine short story, incorporating real-time developments in relations between China and European countries. At the time, the end of the Sino-Japanese War had sparked concern that if European nations got too aggressive in Asia, Japan and China might finally unite to end Western dominance once and for all. Shield took that fear and combined it with circulating stereotypes embodied in the central Asiatic character in Bret Hart's poem, The Heathen Chinese, named, fittingly, Ah Sin. The result was Dr. Yen Hao. Yen Hao was heathen. He was that first of all. On the whole, he despised all religions. He was full of light, but without a hint of warmth, and so lacked the religious emotion. Chiel isn't shy about framing Yen Hao as a threat to religion in general and European Christianity in particular. Yen Hao menaces European Christian women most of all. It's only after a white woman spurns him that he resolves to destroy Western civilization. Talk about not being able to handle rejection. At this point, it's worth contextualizing the novel in light of Shield's seriously disturbing sexuality. The next bit of this episode contains discussion of child sexual abuse, so please take a moment to emotionally prepare yourself if necessary. While it's been known for a while that Shield spent time in prison, it wasn't till 2008 that an unearthed letter from Shield to his publisher revealed the reason for his incarceration, a conviction for raping his 12-year-old stepdaughter. Kirsten McLeod, who discovered the nature of Shield's conviction, points out that Shield's novels are littered with evidence of his predatory interest in young girls. These disturbing themes don't appear in The Yellow Danger, but they do suggest an ironic parallel between Shield's coercive sexuality and his monster's determination to force himself on the white woman who rejects him. Later in the podcast, we'll return to the way that Shield at times comes dangerously close to celebrating his villain's darkest vices. For now, though, it's important to note that Shield demonizes in Yen Hao the impulses that he downplayed in himself. Yen Hao's propensity for sexual violence isn't just a sign of a warped individual. It's a symptom of his satanic personality, itself a symptom of China's fundamental evil. In Yen Hao, then, Shield created the literary embodiment of Wilhelm's dragon-riding Buddha. And just like Wilhelm's Buddha, Yen Hao was a force of nature, aiming for nothing less than the annihilation of Europe. He bases his entire scheme on the notion that, since there are far more non-Christians than Christians in the world, all the pagans need to conquer the white race is an army from the most populous pagan nation of all, China. For the Chinese to fulfill their destiny, however, they themselves must be led by the most anti-Christian of anti-Christians, Yen Hao himself. 
The doctor is determined to make sure the entire Chinese race becomes as devoted to raping and pillaging Wei Christendom as he is. So once he gains the power to do so, Yan Hao orders the slaughter of all white people in China. Clearly inspired by the murder of the two German missionaries I mentioned earlier, Shield's narration transforms a double homicide into an anti-white genocide. At once there occurred a memorable Passover day through the length and breadth of China, a holiday of Goa, an orgy of death to symbolize the annihilation of the white race all the world over. This solemn feast day, this sacrament of blood, made a lasting impression upon the spirit of the Chinese race. What's especially striking about this moment is the religious language in play. Notice that Shield specifically describes the massacre as a Passover and a sacrament, evoking a hideous parody of Christian and Jewish rituals. Moreover, since every ritual requires participants, the language implies that China is populated by beings just as monstrous as Yen Hao. Beings who need a sacrament of blood to awaken the perversion dormant in their souls. And as he uses his far-reaching influence to lead Europe into internal division, Yen Hao orders the newly bloodthirsty Chinese to organize into a massive army. Through a combination of physical discipline and relentless ideological programming, the army's drill sergeants hone China's appetite for destruction. The result is the uniform celebration of three attributes that, according to Shiel, are endemic to the Chinese race. Greed, cruelty, and racial pride. In a typically unsubtle moment, Shiel refers to these as China's three gospels. You might be wondering whether at least a few of China's famously teeming masses might call Yen Hao's authority into question. I mean, aren't there at least a couple of Chinese who would prefer not to trek across two continents and risk certain death just so that their god emperor can marry a white woman? If you're asking these questions though, you still don't grasp just how bigoted Shield's portrayal of China is. Because not only does Chinese heathenness translate into a lust for sex and violence, it also produces blind obedience to authority. According to Shiel, China is so superstitious that all Yen Hao has to do is literally declare himself the reincarnation of Confucius to get the entire nation to bow down to him. He was raised on high on a throne of royal splendor and exhibited to the muttering and kneeling people the dazzled eye admitted him a god. There was certainly not one now who did not know of Yen Hao, the reincarnate, the bringer of glad tidings, the head of his people. This mass obedience is made easier by the fact that Yen Hao is, after all, only requiring the Chinese to obey all the sinister impulses they already wish to inflict on the wider world. In a very real sense, Yen Hao is the heathen Chinese ultimate idol, embodying all the greed, all the cruelty, all the racial pride that has been lurking in the Chinese psyche for thousands of years. In the total fusion between Yen Hao and his worshippers, we can see a monstrous version of the hive mind that Sinophobes ascribe to Chinese and Asians in general. 
This hive mind, though, goes way beyond the assumptions of robotic groupthink that Asians like myself are so used to encountering. Here are some phrases that Shiel uses to describe the Chinese army when it finally begins its invasion of Europe. A new thing moving under the sun, an inconceivable worm of humanity, a wild four-horse chariot, a snake nest of intermixing pigtails. If this sounds like a biblical plague, then you're on Shiel's wavelength. In fact, I'd even say that as outrageously evil as Yen Hao is, he actually isn't the central monster of the Yellow Danger. No, the closest analog here to the vampires and wolfmen and aliens of other late Victorian texts just is the aggregate Chinese race itself. And Shiel accentuates just how much the monstrosity of the Chinese as a whole exceeds everyday quote-unquote normal conceptions of evil. Specifically saying that the approaching Chinese inspire a quote supernatural affright in the Europeans who are awaiting not just an invading army, but the vanguards of hell itself. Eventually, he makes explicit that the yellow danger fulfills the horrors of Revelation, writing, Then came to pass even to the utmost that vision in the apocalypse of the poet. Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, the Chinese army isn't just composed of millions of individual monsters. It's so mindless, so herd-like, and so submissive to its head that it just is a gigantic monster. Something out of a medieval book of legends. Part snake, part horse, part worm, all demon. And just in case you didn't catch that this monster hates Christianity, She'll make sure you get the point once the Chinese beast reaches Paris. Not only do Yen Hao's armies butcher everyone in the city limits, they then march into Notre Dame Cathedral, replace all its Catholic icons with monstrous looking idols, and make it into a shrine to Yen Hao himself. When I first read The Yellow Danger, I thought it was pretty weird that the Chinese villains specifically chose to desecrate a symbol of French Catholicism. Isn't the whole point of this book to glorify Protestant England? Isn't it a, a fantasy of triumph over and against the forces of decline besieging the nation? Why not St. Paul's or Westminster Cathedral? If we read this moment in light of Kaiser Wilhelm's Yellow Peril cartoon, though, it makes sense. The China threat is so massive that it endangers all of Christendom. And it's so threatening that it requires a very special type of Christian hero. It requires an Englishman. That brings me to Yen Hao's foil, Shield's version of the Archangel Michael in Kaiser Wilhelm's cartoon. John Hardy the plucky British soldier who puts a stop to Yen Hao's unholy madness. Partly through shooting a bunch of Chinese people, partly through being a brilliant military tactician, and apparently partly through being really good at Braveheart-like speeches on the nobility of genocide. Well, what are we to say of such a race, men? Do you not agree with me that the earth would be well rid of such a people? As for me, I hear it now before you all, and before Almighty God, devote my entire life henceforth to their destruction. 
Eat your heart out, William Wallace. By the final naval battle between Yen Hao and John Hardy, Hardy has come to embody British virtue as much as Yen Hao embodies Chinese vice. Having begun as a modest young sailor, he ascends in rank throughout the novel, not by manipulating and murdering, but by patiently exercising his combination of intelligence, courage, and prototypically English bashfulness. He sacrifices his physical well-being over and over. And as for his relationship to the divine, Shia literally describes him as answering the call of heaven. In fact, Shia really doesn't mince words when it comes to pointing out Hardy's resemblance to another self-sacrificing heaven-sent savior. When Hardy finally dies after losing a duel with a Frenchman, Shield writes, His cavalry was not heroic, without vigor and rigor. Just like Jesus, Hardy dies a martyr's death, sacrificing himself at his cavalry to honor Europe's sacred laws of chivalry. So if Hardy is like Christ and Britain is like Hardy, does that make Britain like Christ? Well, I'll let Shield answer in his own words. It was England who would have to damn the yellow wave. She alone, who must needs take up the cross of the world, and like the Christ of the nations, with many an agony and bloody sweat, redeem mankind. There you have it. Britain is the so-called Christ of the nations, called to redeem mankind by blowing away as many Chinese people as possible. Just like our bashful boy hero John Hardy, however, this Christ of nations has to work its way up to committing redemptive violence. Early in the novel, a British member of parliament bemoans the fact that Britain turns the other cheek way too often. Shield pays lip service to this holy passion for peace. But in the end, Great Britain has to become just as ruthless as China if it's going to redeem humanity. Ultimately, Shield justifies Hardy's mass slaughter of the Chinese who've already surrendered by comparing him to Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. Just as Jesus was above the rules governing the Sabbath, Shield writes, Hardy is above the rules governing war crimes. It is not our business here to defend what has been called the crime of Hardy. Napoleon, taking the laws of heaven into his own hands poisoned at Acre a number of his sick soldiers. This, too, raged a cry and was called crime. Another of that genus took upon himself to break the old Sabbath, and this raised a cry. But he did not mind. Personally, we believe that the great man has naturally and properly these powers, that what he does is right. You heard that right. Scheele approvingly describes Hardy as belonging to the, quote, genus of great men that also includes Napoleon and Jesus. All of these heroes are subject to the laws of heaven, not the laws of men, which is an awfully convenient alibi for infecting a defeated enemy with the plague. And as it turns out, accepting those few leisured persons carping about Hardy's crime the nation as a whole swallows this alibi. Not least because, at the novel's conclusion, the British Empire ends up ruling the whole planet. For saving all of Christendom, even those French papists, Britain receives the grand prize of world dominion.
You don't really know what you can believe because there's so many sources saying so many different things. It's weakening trust between the media and the, the audience. I'm pretty sure that I have shared fake news, but I didn't realize it until someone corrected me. No one knows what to trust and what not to trust anymore. Misinformation, a threat to democracy, public health, and maybe even the human species as a whole. Or is it? What does this word really mean? And why has it become such a hot topic? I'm Dr. Susanna Crockford, an anthropologist who studies conspiracy theories and the ways they affect religious, spiritual, and other communities. While there is a lot of talk about misinformation floating around, there are a few trustworthy sources where you can learn what it is and how it works in yoga communities, online message boards, wellness spaces, church congregations, and of course, social media. Come for the wacky ideas about biohacking and election rigging, stay for the research on the effects of these ideas on public health and democracy. Misinformation debuts May 24th, 2024, and episodes will be released weekly. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts, because misinformation matters. See you soon. Shield's tale of the Yellow Danger versus the White Crusader was enormously successful and enormously influential. Without Yan Hao, there is no Fu Manchu, the notorious Chinese villain synonymous with long mustaches and oriental cruelty. It's no coincidence that Sax Romer's creation is specifically described as having a face like Satan, recalling the demonic Yan Hao's kinship with Lucifer. In the 1932 film The Mask of Fu Manchu, the doctor, played by Boris Karloff, voices Yen Hao's contempt for the white man's religion, gloating, And at sunrise tomorrow, you too will have the pleasure of entering your Christian heaven together. It will be your honor to be the first white martyrs to perish at the hands of the new Genghis Khan. It should be pretty clear by now that Sax Romer owes a debt to Shield's novel. And even though moviegoers aren't exactly clamoring for a reboot of Fu Manchu, we can see the influence of this character everywhere. Not least at the Christian quote-unquote satire site, The Babylon Bee, which thought it was hilarious to doctor a photo of Anthony Fauci by adorning him with the characteristic Fu Manchu mustache and a rice paddy hat. Meanwhile, the thought of nefarious Chinese scientists plotting to cook up a world-destroying plague obviously owes a major debt to Sax Romer's so-called Devil Doctor. Still, even though the Fu Manchu Yen Hao stereotype incarnates the notion of a singular Asiatic criminal mastermind, he doesn't necessarily spotlight the other monster in Shield's novel, the collective Chinese race itself, slouching like W.B. Yeats' rough beast in his poem The Second Coming, towards the heart of Western civilization. The 20th century revival of this trope would begin in another region of American pop culture, the evangelical movement. The yellow peril will sweep on, reinforced by the red terror to spread the deeds of the devil. By the mid 20th century, Fu Manchu had become a fixture of Anglo-American pop culture. So had his copycat, Ming the Merciless, the oriental and literally alien enemy of the swashbuckling space hero Flash Gordon. The hair of your skin, I've never seen one like you before. You are beautiful. Your smile. 
tiny hands off her. At the same time, though, evangelicals terrified of communism were creating their own Sinophobic fantasy. Evangelical writer Dan Gilbert wrote a book called Red China, The Yellow Peril in Biblical Prophecy, which offered the warning you just heard about the Yellow Terror's devilish deeds. And in a move that might sound familiar to those tracking Christian nationalism today, Gilbert also wrote a book called Devil Worshippers in Washington, D.C. Two decades later, evangelist Hal Lindsey further popularized this idea in his book The Late Great Planet Earth which was poured over by members of the post-60s Jesus movement. The sobering fact that Red China will have ICBMs capable of delivering H-bombs by 1980 at the latest presents another grisly potential for fulfilling prophecy regarding this oriental power. Within a decade, China alone will have the capacity to destroy one-third of the world's population, just as John predicted. With Revelation 6.12's Kings of the East, Lindsay renewed the notion of China as a massive and inhuman threat to God's people. Communist China, identified in the book of Revelations as the kings of the East, begins to mobilize an army of 200 million men. The stage will be set for the final battle of history. Lindsay's best-selling book fascinated the early religious right, and in doing so, caught the attention of Ronald Reagan. According to biographer Lou Cannon, Reagan would hold forth on the theory that the kings of the East were fulfilled in a 20th century Asian army, that of Imperial Japan. Reagan seems to have had trouble distinguishing China from Japan. This preoccupation with China went underground for a couple decades, as the Christian right obsessed over other enemies like Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Today, however, it's obvious that sanctified Sinophobia has resurrected amongst the Christian nationalists of the COVID era. A century-old demon has been brought back to life, and real Asians are suffering the consequences. And so now, as in times past, this nation must again take control of our own destiny and lead the free world to a better day. The free nations again confront a common threat. The Chinese Communist Party is a menace to all free peoples. It seeks nothing less than domination, by now, anti-Chinese polemic is so commonplace that even Asians like me hardly blink twice when we hear comments like Josh Hawley's 2020 speech. But it's crucial that we step back and recognize just how core sanctified Sinophobia is to Christian nationalists like Hawley today. As fixation with reviving Anglo-centric Christendom has increased, the notion of China as the epitome of heathenness has also returned with a vengeance. And China's place in the American imagination really shifts over the course of the 19th century. Initially, Euro-Americans, like Europeans, are coveting Chinese goods and kind of believing the Chinese to be at fairly high stage of, you know, civilizational development. But when they start coming to the U.S., they become a threat. And the longevity of the Chinese empire, I think, really in particular, um, sets the youth, you know, the relative youth of the U.S. experiment uh, into sharp relief. And I think this this is where heathenness becomes 
especially useful as a slur against the Chinese. You know, there are also former missionaries, or at least people who tried to be missionaries, who argue the Chinese are incapable of converting. Father Bouchard, who's a Catholic priest, and he says the Chinese, you know, are, quote, incapable of rising to the virtue that is inculcated by the religion of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I was, I was finishing the book in the, um, the early months of the pandemic when, you know, exactly like these theories about wet markets, etc., were were making their way across social media and um, certain news outlets. And I actually ended up writing this little like postscript to the book about COVID and I titled it, I think I titled it like The More Things Change. The contemporary rights sinophobia wasn't necessarily inevitable. Before the 2010s, conventional wisdom assumed that free market liberalization would democratize China. We all know what happened next. With the emergence of COVID in China in early 2020, Christian right politicians saw an opportunity to mobilize their base against a foreign enemy in advance of the presidential election that fall. The word heathen is no longer used, really. But I think we are still seeing kind of the same marking of the Chinese as not only unassimilable, but also as actual threats to you know, the nation into the world, really, right? Because COVID is not just about the U.S., it's about the world. And I think we see the same kind of blame game that happened in the 19th century about, you know, contagious Chinese diseases that are a result of backwards Chinese beliefs. Particularly spurred by Trump. The Chinese virus. Mike Pompeo. We're responding to this risk of the Wuhan virus. And Congressman Paul Gosar. China's feeding on us. Terms like China virus and Wuhan virus coincided with a marked increase in anti-Asian violence throughout the United States. And, in fact, throughout the world. A 13-year decline in negative views of Asians in America suddenly reversed. Once more, the idea of China as a uniquely godless place, filled with uniquely godless people, wallowing in uniquely godless barbarity, re-entered the cultural discourse. So did the idea that China wasn't even a country filled with people, but an abstract apocalyptic force ready to end Western civilization as we know it. An inhuman threat on par with a superstorm or a plague. They want to blame it all on, on President Trump, but, but at the same time, I mean, he, he wasn't serving bat soup in, in the Wuhan <laughs> province. I, I, I mean, it, the Chinese Communist Party accountable for the Wuhan coronavirus. I would kick out every single Chinese in this country that is loyal to the CCP. And they would be you, gone. If you sign I do one, not if, care if, who if, they are. If you sign one of those documents that says that yes, you're, you've you're got a report. Back to China. Napoleon said when China awakens, the world will tremble. Let's take us back to the book of uh, Isaiah now and look at the identity of the kings of the East. As in the pages of Shields' novel, America's MAGA ministries relish the idea of China as a world-ending menace, not least to Christendom itself. Megachurch pastor Phil Hotzenpiller's sermon, which you just heard, used a handful of verses from the book of Revelation to reboot Hal Lindsey's ideas, casting China as the source of the kings of the East who will oppose God's people at Armageddon. Tellingly, Hotzenpiller doesn't end there. It's good to be in a battle together. Just like Sheil, Hotzenpiller invokes the Chinese menace only to reassure his audiences of the happy ending awaiting them. The triumph of God's people is, after all, a foregone conclusion. Similarly, the other denunciations of China you just heard 
function to rally the troops, to get them more pumped up for ultimate victory. The terror triumph complex is hard at work. And just in case the notion of China as the Antichrist doesn't produce quite enough terror, demagogues like Tom Cotton are willing to claim that China had a plan to harvest the DNA of Olympic athletes in order to create genetically modified super soldiers. No word on whether Marvel plans to sue for copyright infringement. Let me be clear. I am no fan of the Chinese Communist Party. As the proud descendant of immigrants from Hong Kong, I watched with horror as the mainland government instituted the national security law in 2020, which crushed the freedom of expression amongst Hong Kong dissidents. My family line includes at least one school teacher who was branded as a counter-revolutionary during the Cultural Revolution. Today, the drive to subjugate the Uyghur population of East Turkestan, known officially as China's Xinjiang province, should outrage anyone of sound conscience. But it's precisely because I abhor the CCP's violations of human dignity that I find the sanctified Sinophobia of Christian nationalists so disturbing. More often than not, denunciations of the CCP imply that such crimes would never happen in America, land of the free and home of the brave. China is ruled by a conformist hive mind, and we are not. China is communist, and we are not. China is authoritarian, and we are not. So our vision is one where people are allowed to self-govern, live freely. The vision of the Chinese is much different. They do believe in the ability to form human nature and to create a collective and, and any means justify those ends. This is the essential conflict on how, how they perceive the freedom of the individual. In reality, anyone who's familiar with facts on the ground in China knows that the collectivist hive mind trope is a total fantasy. More often than not, CCP authoritarianism depends on a patchwork system filled with contradictions and inconsistent regulation. Meanwhile, the one-child policy has given way to an aggressive family values campaign that pressures parents to have children and that has literally banned depictions of gay men from television. The fact is, the CCP's authoritarianism involves a blend of aggressive patriotism, heteropatriarchal values, oppression of racial minorities, and glorification of its leader as a world historical great man. Sound familiar? The rise of CCP authoritarianism could have been an opportunity for those in power in America to recognize the parallels between hypernationalism in China and in the United States. Instead, Christian nationalists are summoning a 140-year-old boogeyman that frames China as the enemy of all humanity. And in response to that boogeyman, they're asserting that America could use a little more authoritarianism itself. Tom Cotton and his colleague Tommy Tuberville introduced a bill this week that would ban the CCP and anyone associated with the CCP from buying up American land. We need a military that's flat out hostile. We need a military full of type A men who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. To encourage all Chinese Americans to come out and denounce China. If I was Xi Jinping and I saw drag queen halftime show, I would take Taiwan over lunch. National defense strategy highlights the pacing challenge of China. And that's why we're investing some $6 billion of this budget in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Sanctified Sinophobia today doesn't just encourage anti-Asian violence within the U.S. 
It also encourages us to imagine anti-Asian violence as a future geopolitical necessity. Over the last few years, the Pentagon has successfully convinced Congress to sign on to that vision, justifying its mushrooming budget in the name of fighting the Chinese. And the hard truth for liberals is, these budget increases happened under Biden, not just under Trump. In fact, Biden's administration initially continued the Trump administration's China Initiative, a neo-McCarthyite campaign to root out pro-CCP academics that ended up ruining the lives of Chinese professors like University of Kansas professor Franklin Tao. This turn towards anti-Chinese warmongering goes hand in hand with patronizing expressions of concern for the well-being of China's population. William Wolfe, a Trump administration veteran who's become something of a thought leader amongst Christian fascists, called for the Chinese people to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. Insisting that this call for revolution was born out of a love for Chinese people, Wolf said, I love China. I want them to love China more than America. Ultimately, however, this polemic isn't all that different from a Yellow Danger subplot, which features a doomed romance in Yen Hao's China. An oriental Romeo and Juliet who end up dying because of their attempt to find love in a hopeless place. Just like Shiel, Christian nationalists occasionally highlight the Chinese people's suffering to underscore China's uniquely oppressive government, which the few quote-unquote good citizens can overcome only through the intervention of white Christian America. That intervention, however, requires toughness, hardness, heteronormative patriarchy. What do you think our enemies are doing? They're laughing. You think that China is thinking about, we gotta make sure. We have plenty of trans pilots. Fueled by these fantasies of macho warrior aggression, sanctified Sinophobes like Donald Trump Jr. seduce Americans into embracing the very authoritarianism they project onto godless China. Expelling the Chinese threat justifies being transphobic, contemptuous of academic freedom, relentlessly warmongering, and nakedly racist. And in addition to justifying ruthlessness, it also justifies a kind of hive mind mentality, one that puts the trope of Chinese groupthink to shame. Despite a total absence of evidence, a critical mass of Christian nationalists believe that the coronavirus was created in a Wuhan laboratory. What's more, the lab leak hypothesis didn't grow because of any of the right's quote unquote evidence. It grew because of a pervasive enthusiasm for mindless repetition an emphasis on retweeting instead of reviewing the so-called information before them. It's a core feature of what political science scholars Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum call the new conspiracism. In my conversation with Dr. Andrew Whitehead, he identified a dimension of Christian nationalism that I think helps explain why Christian nationalism encourages losing oneself within a collective. Simply put, it feels good to do so much there. I think one thing that comes to mind with, with these rallies in sociology that this brings to mind, Randall Collins's idea of um, interaction ritual theory. There are structural explanations for, you know, the ways that we interact at a micro level um, that bring what Durkheim called collective effervescence. When we get a lot of people together and it's in close proximity to one another and we are all focusing on the same thing and there are high barriers to outsiders, right? So we know who we are and 
if the group is pretty homogenous, right? All these things play a role in how much emotional energy will build up. The ecstasy of immersive spectacle, visible at countless rallies and conferences and fascistic carnival events, stirs up this rapturous feeling of being part of something greater than oneself, in which one's personal cares can be completely dissolved. One especially potent example of this was on view at Doug Mastriano's rally in September 2022, where the Pennsylvanian gubernatorial candidate led the crowd in what can only be described as the 21st century evangelical version of his Siegheil, accompanied by this slogan. If you're willing to do this, can you say what they said at Gettysburg? When you see us lined up as one, as one on the count of three, one, two, three, as one! As one. That's the mentality that sanctified xenophobia ascribes to China. But paradoxically, the magnitude of the foreign threats that America supposedly faces from enemies like China requires the John Hardys of our time to embrace the hive mind. And when it comes to parroting Wuhan lab leak conspiracy theories, I can't help but feel that in this case, the sheer pleasure of demonizing China made that mindless repetition all the more enjoyable. The spectacle provides kind of this outlet for some of the resentment where they feel this is a safe place for them to be exactly who they want to be. What happens when the participants in this ecstatic ritual take all that righteous resentment out into the wider world? How does it feel to be on the receiving end of that almost joyous hatred, which is after all, the very same delirious wrath of John Hardy? Here's a story from an anonymous Asian source whose credibility I can vouch for that speaks to that exact question. I am a former ministry leader who resigned their position in large part due to what I perceived to be unaddressed xenophobia and racism. I was sitting in a room with other ministry leaders and we were discussing a uh, Chinese individual who also worked in our ministry context. And one leader remarked that it was a good thing that this Chinese individual was struggling at their position because it meant that they were not a spy sent from the Chinese government because, quote, I don't trust those people, unquote. Now at the time when this was said, most people that were present were not okay with the comments. But as time passed by, people started to uh, forget about its severity and actually also defend the comments. Uh, one person that I really looked up to uh, remarked um, that it was clearly a sinful comment, that it was wrong, that it was unfortunate, only to change their tune. About nine months later, nine months later, this same individual told me that perhaps I was judging the intentions of this person who made these comments. Perhaps I was the one who misinterpreted, and perhaps this person was simply just looking out for this ministry, looking out for the church in saying that this person could be a spy. And another ministry person made the comment saying that any Chinese student could potentially be 
a spy because China is known for sending a bunch of spies to infiltrate ministries and it's just a known thing. Um, so any Chinese student is subject for questioning. The sad part is uh, one, of, one of the people that I looked up to would, uh, during the rise of um, anti-Asian hate crimes, um, this one individual that I looked up to uh, would actually um, say that, you know, it's been a really hard time for Asians and Asian Americans and, you know, they've experienced a lot of hurt. The same individual in this context would later tell me that I judged the intentions of this um, person who made these comments, even though clearly he had originally um, called the comments sinful. By me trying to bring awareness to this issue and by me trying to confront this issue, it led to me uh, being uh, painted as someone who, yeah, someone who judged, someone who, you know, was causing trouble. And I knew that this, um, you know, these, these statements, these comments were, were simply not in line with my values. So I didn't feel like I uh, belonged in this context. There's no physical assault in that story, no vicious explosion of verbal abuse. Just a quiet expression of relief at a colleague's hardships, since they mean that he probably isn't on the CCP's payroll. What's scary about the racism in that story is precisely how mundane it is, how low-key, and how pervasive in light of the jubilant sinophobia that the COVID era has unleashed. It's not an exaggeration to say that this too is part of the resurrection of the Yellow Dangers mania. It's truly eerie to observe the ruthlessness and mindlessness of today's sanctified sinophobes in light of the yellow danger. With frightening accuracy, Scheele intuited how the specter of heathen China could assuage white Christian fears of decline. How it could be used to justify and even glorify the worst tendencies of a nation still structured to privilege white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It's no exaggeration to say that America's Christian nationalists find precedent in Scheele's hero, John Hardy, not to mention in Scheele himself. In fact, just like a certain recent president, John Hardy comes to represent the archetypal good bully, the aggressor who uses violence for the sake of a noble cause. Hardy's exposure to Chinese torture spurs him to become a ruthless force of nature in his own right. As we discussed earlier, it even requires him to abandon Christian gentility in the name of emulating Christ. And isn't this exactly what Christians want from Trump? Not the Christ who loves his enemies, but the belligerent Christ who bears a sword at the end of time, who incinerates the ruthless, heathen, single-minded kings of the East? Do you not agree with me that the earth would be well rid of such a people? Now as in the Victorian era, the monstrous villainy of the Chinese authorizes white Christians to stop being so nice and start playing dirty. When we come back to Shield's novel though, we find a bit of a wrinkle in this argument for aggression. Remember how Shield identified Napoleon, Jesus, and John Hardy as belonging to the same category of great men? Well, there's another character that Shield compares to Napoleon, Yen Hao. 
To be clear, Shiel likens Yen Hao to Napoleon specifically in their shared underestimation of the British Navy, not in their common accountability to the so-called laws of heaven. Still, the fact that Yen Hao is also painted as something of a great man of history suggests that white Christians' bellicose ambitions are, in the end, no more moral or spiritual than those of their enemies. In moments like this, we can see Shiel betray an affinity for his monster's hubris. The same hubris behind Shiel's and Yen Hao's shared assumption that the bodies of girls and women exist for their pleasure. Then there's the fact that at the end of the day, Shiel even admits that China itself has a role to play in God's mysterious design. Hardy's plan to exterminate all Chinese might feel good to vengeful Britain, but ultimately, Britain has to accept that the quote-unquote yellow man is destined to be, in his own way, God's minister. But if that's true, then Britain's status as the Christ of nations doesn't really depend on how good or noble or self-sacrificing it is. No, its messianic status just depends on the fact that its acts, no matter how evil or sadistic, are ordained to accomplish God's purposes. At the end of the novel then, we can see Shiel almost flirting with the idea that at the end of the day, China and Great Britain are just two of God's ministers with the barbaric acts committed on both sides, serving a God whose motives are even more unreadable than those of the famously inscrutable Chinese. What's scary about today's sanctified xenophobia is the degree to which on a global scale Military leaders refuse to engage in any reflection on the similarities between their own vices and those of the Chinese enemy of their imagination. Amidst increasing fears of CCP domination, culturally Christian nations around the world are increasingly open to seeing confrontation with China in terms of a global holy war. In January 2022, German naval chief K. Achim Schoenbach faced blowback for saying the following at a meeting with Indian defense analysts. We need Russia against China. Probably not from your perspective, but from my perspective, I'm a radical Roman Catholic. I'm believing in God and I'm believing in Christianity. And here is a Christian country. In other words, Christian nations need Russia to face off against non-Christian China. It's true that Schoenbach resigned after backlash to his comments, but the ease with which he expressed himself reminds us that Kaiser Wilhelm's warning lives on. It's because of such terrifying rhetoric that in December 2020, I decided to write and circulate an open letter addressing the anti-Asian rhetoric of major Christian nationalist politicians like Paul Gosar, Mike Pompeo, Josh Hawley, and a host of others. The silence of these politicians associated religious leaders like Pompeo's pastor Stan Vandenberg of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church or Marsha Blackburn's pastor Scott Sauls of Christ Presbyterian Nashville or Tucker Carlson's denomination, the Episcopal Church, is inexcusable. Words matter. They matter even more when they're couched in a religious call to arms and even more when that call to arms is heard by millions around the world who look to America as the leader of the 19th century's white Christian descendants. The 700 signatures that the open letter has garnered so far 
indicate that I'm not alone in being alarmed by the resurgence of MP Shield's brand of sanctified sinophobia. Perhaps the ultimate lesson of John Hardy's and Yin Hao's duality is the way that it anticipates the two empires that mirror each other today, both in how they glorify themselves and in how they demonize their enemy. It's no exaggeration to say that the CCP's zeal for dogmatic allegiance to Xi Jinping, framed as a messianic figurehead who will realize China's destiny to bring communism to the world, reflects the GOP's own zeal for dogmatic allegiance to Donald Trump, the messianic figurehead who will realize America's destiny to bring Christianity to the world. To this Cantonese-Canadian-American, the Yen Hao of the Christian nationalist imagination serves to justify America's own version of John Hardy, the ruthless great man who answers only to the laws of heaven, the dangers that ordinary Asians in America suffer as a result are more likely to run red than yellow.